Very beautiful. Thank you. As I mentioned before, we are in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are going to tackle chapter 14 today, 1 Corinthians 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one in a chair in front of you, page 960, is where you'll find 1 Corinthians 14. This section, 11, 12, 13, and 14, it's all about... uh, instructions about worship and we get to the we're at the ending this section and it's one of the most complicated sections in Corinthians so I'm personally very happy we are coming to the end Uh, so let's stand together and read the first 26 verses here pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy For no one who speaks in a tongue speaks to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? So with yourselves, if... With your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be, be, be mature. The law is written by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. Will I speak to this people? And even when they will not listen to me, says the Lord, even when they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for the believer. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? But if I prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he can be convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his, hearts are dis- his heart are disclosed, 
So, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You may be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's word. I don't know if any of you all have ever been to a chiropractor. But if you visit one, you get what's called an adjustment. And the reason you need this adjustment is because your spine is misaligned in some way. And that misalignment of your spine is causing usually pain in one of your limbs or maybe just in your back. The the misalignment has a negative effect on the rest of your body. And you might say in 1 Corinthians, Paul is like a chiropractor. And he sees that the church of Corinth is misaligned. And he needs to give them an adjustment. And so he gives a series of adjustments. You might say 16 chapters of adjustment. And the problem is that they were misaligned so that their behaviors didn't match their beliefs. Their life didn't match what they said they loved. And so Paul comes in through the letter to be like a chiropractor and, and sort of crack the spine, as you, would, you might imagine, and get them adjusted so the two things match up. And this morning we're examining Paul's final adjustments here in chapter 14. And like I said, it's a complicated passage. I can't possibly unpack all the possibilities that scholars come to because biblical, good biblical scholars, people you would agree with, come out on different sides with other people you would agree with. And so probably I'm going to come to some conclusions here that you might not come to, which is okay. But I want you to come to them through the text. I don't want you to come through some other thing. I want you to read the text and say, this is the best I can do. And then I think we can can get along in that way. So I'm not, not worried about that part. And I want to approach this in three different, with three different headings. First, I want to just point out the point of the passage. Now, this is the point that almost everyone is going to agree on, and it's the, the, this first heading is the one I have most confidence in. The second thing, the second heading is the questions, everyone, the questions I think everyone wants asked from this text. And I have less confidence, a little less confidence, in my conclusions here. And so you'll have to listen in and, and read, like the Berean believer. You know, you have to go home and read the scriptures. And so I, I would hold my conclusions here a little bit more loosely. And then my third heading is the two most important words in the passage. And this is the place that I'm most concerned for me and for you. So I'm most confident in the first point. I'm a little less confident in the second point, And I'm most concerned for your soul and for mine in the third point. So let's take these in turn. First, the point of the passage, I think everyone would agree, and you could probably pick it up for yourself just in listening to the reading, is that spiritual gifts, these gifts by the Holy Spirit, when you receive Christ, the only way you can receive Christ is the Holy Spirit is active in your life. And the Holy Spirit distributes all kinds of gifts. See that in chapter 12. 
And the gifts are distributed specifically for the purpose of building up the church. Very easy to see. And with that in mind, the gifts are distributed for the building up of of the church. Paul tackles here, therefore, prophecy is to be greatly preferred over tongues. I think that's the point of the passage, that the gifts are for the building up and prophecy, therefore, is better than tongues. So let's look at this. Spiritual gifts are for building up. Paul makes the point, let's see, at least four times. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. See that definition of prophecy? Upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. Verse 5. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Verse 12. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations, you're eager for this expression of the gifts, strive strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 26, what then, my brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. All these things are for building up. So it's really very clear, very straightforward. And the, the building up is a Greek term. It's an architectural term. It literally means to build a house. So it's a great picture. It's a great picture of what Jesus is doing. He's the master architect. He's planning on building his church. And just the way he's designed it is to give the people in the church different gifts. And they come, maybe like subcontractors, to all put in their gifts so when you were, if you were to build a house, you would need framers and floors. You would need somebody to do the drywall. You need another group to do the painting. So all these people take their specific gifts, they add them to the whole, and a beautiful house comes out of it. Same thing that Paul is trying to say here. Corinthians, you're, you're building a church, and Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit, he's given you these different gifts. And you're all going to take your different gifts, and some of you are going to be teachers or prophets, some are going to be healers or helpers, and each one is going to add to the church. And when it's done well, then you have a beautiful church. But unfortunately, the building project wasn't going so well in Corinth. Some of the subcontractors were using their gifts to build themselves up and not to build up the church. And so it seems apparent from the text that the the people with the biggest problems were those who spoke in tongues. And I think it's actually a a particularly big problem because Paul spends one whole chapter out of 16 on this one issue. So you've got 40 verses of the whole letter connected to this one issue where he's saying, hey, everything's done to being built up. And we've got a problem with the people speaking in tongues thinking that they're supposed to be looking better than everybody else. They're supposed to be more valuable. And Paul wants to make an adjustment to that kind of thinking. And you see it so many times here. I'll just point out a few. Pursue love, verse 1, and earnestly desire the spiritual gift, especially. Now, if you're just hearing this for the very first time and you're in the church of Corinth and you speak in tongues, what do you think he's going to say? Especially if you speak in tongues. And he says, especially prophecy. 
verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. That's the, that's the opposite of what he's saying should be happening. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, it really couldn't be any more clear. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Which is the very opposite of the, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So it's unfruitful if you don't know what you're saying. And verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words. I mean, he, just, he couldn't make the, the difference any greater. So he's really deflating these people, but he, he means to do it in an adjusting way. He's just trying to help them understand that if the person who prophesies, the person who can be understood, the person who's bringing together the truths about God in verse 24 and 25, then secrets of people's hearts are, to, are disclosed. They fall on their face. They worship God, and that's the whole goal. So first point, first heading. The, the purpose of the passage, everyone can agree that it, the gifts are given to build up the church. Jesus is the master architect. He's given you. And when I mean you, I'm looking at you. Not, oh, he's given the gifts to everybody else. No, he's given you some kind of gift. You're supposed to add it to this building up of the church. And he specifically is saying that the prophecy gift is greater than the gift of tongues. All right, number two. The questions everyone wants addressed from this passage. So here I have a little less confidence. Should I hold on a little bit more loosely? And I, again, there's, there's books written on these two chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 14. So I'm not going to read these books today. I'm just going to give you a, a sort of a flyby. But the first question I think most people ask is, have some of these spiritual gifts ceased? specifically prophecy, tongues, and miracles. So some Bible scholars, they read the Bible and say these things happened in Paul's day, but some of them, and they just draw the line at prophecy, tongues, and healing, those things have ceased. And if you're somebody who believes that, the, the scholarly term is I'm a cessationist. If you think they've continued, then you are a continuationist. It's not very complicated. All right? So you're going to find yourself on the cessationist side or the continuationist side. That would be good for you to use tomorrow in your business. So some, the, the cessationists basically believe, and I'm really reducing here, that when the Bible was closed, the canon was closed, all, everything was decided that was going to go in the Bible. Once that got closed and the apostles ceased to exist, the last one died out, probably the apostle John, then, then these miraculous gifts, prophecy, healing, and tongues ceased. And I think they have some good arguments for their position, but I think their arguments are less convincing than the continuationist arguments. I think when you read through these texts, and this is just one of a few that are in the New Testament, the most natural reading is that the spiritual gifts are going to continue in whatever way God decides to distribute them. And to sort of arbitrarily say these, these three out of a list of seven 
or so, just we're going to just say, these three, they're gone. And I would just say, well, I mean, maybe they don't show up in the same way. I don't know, but it just feels a little bit more artificial just to, this, to, to impose upon the text, which I don't want to do, a line that doesn't seem obvious as the reader. So I would say I'm a continuationist with an asterisk. So this is how, if, if you're not sure about what you want to say, you put an asterisk by it and say, well, you know, you got to, like, give yourself a loophole. And I would say this. Um, I'll explain my sort of asterisk about tongues here in a moment. But I would say when, when one, of, one of the gifts it listed here is apostleship, that's in chapter 12. It's listed in Ephesians as well. I think that's when Paul uses that word, he's specifically talking about a position in the church that's for the people that you and I, I think, think are the apostles. I think, think. That's probably not going to be good on the recording. But I think that we think together, when you hear the word apostle, you probably mean Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, you know, those people. And those particular people are called apostles, and they're in a very unique position to set a foundation for the church. And once they leave, then I don't think it's good to call somebody else an apostle. Now, it can mean to be sent, so it can have sort of a generic meaning. But I think when most people think of it, they think of it as, I got a special commission by Jesus. I witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, so therefore there aren't any more apostles. So that's my main asterisk there. So you can be a continuationist. You can be a cessationist. And I'm a continuationist. Second question. If these things have continued, specifically prophecy and tongues, then what are they? I think a lot of people get very confused by these two things because there's a lot of confusion of how maybe you've heard about them or even seen them expressed. And again, when you go to great biblical scholars, people that you would really trust, they come up on different sides of what, how these things are explained. This is what I would say about these two things. First, prophecy. I think everyone in Orthodox Christianity considers the Bible to be closed, meaning we're not going to add something to the book of the Bible. We're not going to say, okay, Revelation and then Paul Phillips' thoughts. I mean, we're just not going to do that. No dreams, no visions, no word from the Lord from somebody. I mean, whether those things can or, or might or might not be able to happen, no one wants to add them to the Bible. Nobody wants to put them on the par on par with the Bible. So the Bible has no equal. That has to be crystal clear when we even think about the word prophecy. Secondly, here in verse 3, you can just see how Paul defines prophecy. Prophecy builds up, encourages and offers consolation or offers comfort. So I wouldn't think that that would necessarily have been eliminated somehow by the death of the apostles. A much broader term of prophecy, one that would make me feel a little bit more nervous than verse 3, comes from Wayne Grudem, and he says this, telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind. So I'm telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind that can be a prophecy. Now, what, what makes me nervous about that? What makes you nervous about that? 
Well, what makes me nervous about it is my personal experience with it. So somebody comes up to me and says, God told me, and immediately I'm like, "Mm." five alarm fire, right? Goofy Christian in my face right now. And so a couple of examples of this. I was sitting in church many years ago when the preacher said, God told him to tell us to use sticky notes. I don't think God told the preacher to tell his congregation they should use sticky notes. I think he was driving to church and saying, it's so awesome that I've got my Bible verses on my sticky notes in my car. And I I think it's a good idea. Okay, you think it's a good idea. I might think it's a good idea. I might think it's a terrible idea. But it's not God's idea. It's just your idea. Just say, I I thought this was a good idea. But he, he goofs it up by saying, God told me. Second Example, I could give many. A woman visited Christ Community Church. She filled out a visitor card. I called her. Very pleasant conversation. I think a very committed Christian. And we were getting towards the end of the conversation. She said, a prophecy is coming to me about you. So I'm listening. And I think she meant to be encouraging. I think that was her her desire. I want to... I want to encourage this guy. I think he's got a good gift of speaking, and I want to be somebody who encourages that. And, and she said, I can see God's going to give you a great tape ministry. So tapes, cassette tapes are going to be sent out all over the, the world. And I thought, oh. I mean, I don't think so. One, just I don't think cassette tapes are going to be sent out anywhere. I don't want a cassette tape. So maybe she didn't mean it to be encouraging, you know. Your sermons are just going to be on the cassette tape bracket, Mr. Phillips. Nobody's going to read those, listen to those. So what I think she meant to say is I benefited from your messages. I I hope people do benefit from your messages in the future. I'm going to pray towards that end. But she goofed it up. She goofed it up by saying God told me something. And so whenever somebody comes at me like that, I just immediately sort of I have this protective shield that goes up. But I think that's a little unfortunate because I, in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says this, don't put, the spirit, don't put out the Spirit's fire. See, that, this is what I would tend to do, just immediately put out the fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them. Test them. Hold on to what is good. So I don't want to be the person who's got a couple of bad scars, and then I just say, okay, anybody who says this kind of stuff, I'm just going to just hold it in contempt or put out the fire. So when I read Paul's definition of prophecy, verse 3, when I hear his admonition, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it seems to me apart from my experience, because I'm not going to base it on that, that there's room for God to speak in a way that builds up, that encourages, that comforts, but doesn't have the weight of Scripture. That's how I would define that. Now, let me give you an example, a positive example. In 2012, the church was 10 years old, so we started in 2002. And in 2012, I took a three-month sabbatical that summer. 
And I was totally burned out. And the way the picture that came to mind for myself was I was like, you've seen the space shuttle go up and they have the booster rockets. And the booster rockets get you pretty far up, but they, they expend all of their fuel and then they fall away and then another rocket sort of launches them into to space. And I thought, Paul, you're the booster rocket. And you got the church 10 years off the ground, but you, you're done. And so it's time for somebody else to come into Christ Community Church and be like the next rocket and to take it to the next level. I, that's what I thought. And so I'm going into the sabbatical thinking, God, I'm, I just need you to help me see what's the next thing. Because I'm, I'm done here, but so you've got to open some door. And that's how I was approaching the sabbatical. So ironically, on my sabbatical, I went to Kenya to encourage other pastors. So here the burned out pastor comes from America to encourage the pastors in Kenya. One Sunday morning, I was preaching in a very small church, just a a room, mud walls, a, a tin roof, 25 people in the room. The window that everyone looked out of was onto a dump. And the slum held maybe 800,000 people. I'm sitting after my sermon in a plastic chair that's broken, hoping that I don't really break it. And an elder wanted to come up and offer some words of encouragement after the sermon. Not, not just to me, but the whole team. And so he offers some words of encouragement, and then he looks at one point straight at me, and he says, you have a fire in you. And we want to thank you for coming all this way to share that fire with us. But now you must return to your own people and keep sharing that fire with them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a service where you thought, the whole service was just for me. Like, like you didn't even notice anybody else around because somehow that particular message was just right in your wheelhouse. Whatever you were thinking, that's exactly how I felt. It was like, I just arrived at Kenya for this guy. I don't know his name. Going to see him in glory. For him to deliver a message to me to say, Paul, you, you, know, you think you're done? You got some fire left. And you've got to go back and take it back to your people. Now, what do you call that? I think the best word would be prophecy because it's a word of encouragement. I mean, it fits in this definition. Now, am I going to write it down and put it in the Bible next to John 3.16? Well, no. No, I'm going to goof it up then. But I think that's how God uses that. Now, does that, does that feel spongy and squishy? Well, yes, it does. But I think that's why Paul is saying you're going to hear stuff and you've got to test them. You can't just automatically assume that. Okay, if you thought that was complicated, second thing, tongues. The, the first event of tongues took place in Acts chapter 2. You might remember this. The disciples are praying. The Holy Spirit falls down in tongues of flames. And it's 50 day. It's it, the, 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 the celebration that's happening is called Pentecost in Jerusalem. And it's where people from all kinds of nations come to Jerusalem to celebrate this particular event. 
And at this particular event, tongues come down on the disciples and they start speaking languages they personally do not know. It'd be like if I just started speaking Mandarin Chinese right now. But there are some people in the crowd that can understand that language, and I'm communicating to them the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible miracle. And almost everybody connects it to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel, the people gather together. They try to build a big tower. You remember what for? To make them their name great. And God comes down and scatters them and scatters them because of differences of language. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 2. I think it's the exact opposite. He's coming down and he's saying, I am gathering my people. And they're going to come from every tribe and tongue and nation. Why? To make God's name great. So I think that's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Now, the question is... Is this, speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, supposed to be what's happening in 1 Corinthians 14? And again, lots of people have different takes on this. Here, I think, are a couple of, a few different options. Yes, it is the same thing. They're both human languages. They just happen to be unknown to the speaker. No. Tongues in 1 Corinthians is an ecstatic utterance. Uh, disconnected sounds, not a human language. Some ways people might describe it as free vocalization. Third option, no, they're actually not a human language, they're an angelic language. Because Paul says you could speak in the tongues of men or the tongues of angels. So maybe angels have a special language and you speak in that language and that's called tongues. Or no, tongues isn't the same as in Acts 2. It's not a human language. It's a private prayer language. I think those covers cover most of the options. And each of those options have their strengths and weaknesses. But I have landed on that Acts chapter 2 is what's supposed to be happening in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. So tongues is not a static It's not angelic, and it's not private. Reasons I might think this way is the Bible uses the same Greek word, glossolalia, to describe both events, and both times it means language. And it's a real language, so it requires an interpreter. I don't think it's a heavenly language because I think Paul is using extremes to make a point. He's not saying angels have a language. He's just saying a heavenly angelic language or an earthly language, no matter what extreme you're at, if you don't have love, then what are you? Zero. And I don't think Paul is talking about a private prayer language because that's completely opposite of the text. The whole text is whatever the gift you have is for the building up of the church. So however you would think tongues is, it's, it's not primarily for you. It's for the benefit of the church. So look, I've just now stirred up a lot of questions with prophecy and tongues. And you might say, well, my experience, I grew up in, this verse seems to indicate, and this is what I would encourage you to do. Call your elders. That's what I would encourage you to do. <laughs> I'll be out of town for the next month, and you should just call your elders and say, I want to take issue with what Paul said and see, give them a chance to run at it. 
I think if you have questions, certainly you could call me, but I just try to think through why you've come to this conclusion. And don't make it your experience. Make it the Bible. Okay, so last thing, most important thing, I believe. The two most important words in the passage, I believe, are verse 1, pursue love. Pursue love. Some translations might say, you might, it might say, follow me, follow after me. Terrible. It's just not strong enough. I mean, follow after you. Ah, I'm just skipping along. I'm going to follow after you. No, you, it's something you've got to pursue. And Eugene Peterson, in his translation, the message, he gives 15 words to describe these two words. And I like it much better. Go after a life of love like your life depended on it because it does. That's what he's trying to say. Go after a life of love like your whole life depended on it because it actually does depend on it. Love is the most important thing because, well, Paul says it's the most important thing in chapter 13. Love is the most important gift because it's distributed to every person and everyone is supposed to be pursuing this. There are other, there are other gifts you could desire, But this gift you can actually pursue. It's not just saying, I hope the Holy Spirit gives me something. This is something. No, you can actually pursue this. And the reason it's the most concerning for me and also for you is because the love Paul is commanding us to pursue, it's not automatic. You have to pursue it. Like your life depends on it. This, this kind of love isn't acquired by information alone. It's acquired by reformation of your habits. You have to order your whole life around it because it's so important. So you, you could say that I'm much more concerned about your spiritual habits this morning than your spiritual gifts. Why am I concerned about that? And this will close here. I'm concerned because our culture is like a powerful, fast-moving river. And it's a culture that's not just providing you a ride through life. It's not like, well, I was just born in this culture, and I'm just taking this wave through my life. No, the culture, the river of our culture, it actually creates longings. And those longings force you into habits and patterns of living and thinking that shape your soul. I want you to hear this really clearly. The culture is just not some kind of neutral river that you're jumping on and it carries you through. It actually creates longings. And then it tells you how to answer those longings. And so they shape your soul. And it's very possible you and I could be caught in this cultural river that could be deforming us. And we might not even know it. So often Christians march out into the culture to transform it only to find out they've been transformed by it. We overestimate the strength of our convictions. We misjudge the power of our resistance. 
we really don't take seriously Paul's command to the Corinthians who live in this hyper-materialized, hyper-sexualized culture to say, guys, men and women of the church, if you're going to go out in the culture and be transform and transform it, you must first beat your body and make it your slave. Because you have all kinds of longings, and when you get out into the culture, those longings are going to be answered by neon signs everywhere. And if you don't have it under control, you're going to be transformed by the culture. You're not going to transform the culture. Paul knows that we have to create habits, Christian disciplines, which channel our longings towards the love of Christ instead of being carried along by the powerful currents of our culture. James K.A. Smith. James K.A. Smith. If you get any of his material, you should read it. He uses a great a phrase to describe what I've just described. Here's what he says. We are unaware of the power of the cultural liturgy which shapes our lives. The cultural liturgy. You know what liturgy is? It's the thing on that little panel on our bulletin. It's, it's how we have formed our worship service. That's what liturgy is. And what Smith is saying is the culture has a liturgy. And it means for you to worship it. So you can't just go out and say it's just neutral. No, it means to form you. It means to get you to worship it. And if you're unaware, then your soul could be being deformed. Let me give you some examples that maybe are a little more concrete. You enter into our culture and you know you're broken. Nobody has to tell you that. The cultural liturgy tells you that to be whole, which is what you're looking for because you know you're broken inside, you should shop, eat, make more money, gossip, swipe right, or look at pornography and you'll be whole. Every person here enters the culture knowing they're broken. No one enjoys being broken. Everybody's looking for the answer to be broken, and the culture liturgy is going to tell you this is how you do it. Second example you look at our country, and you know our country is broken. Nobody has to tell you it. The cultural liturgy tells you that this next political election, it's the most important election of your lifetime. Of course, until the next election. Politicians, cable news, talk radio, they feed your fears. Power, revenge, resentment, Become the fruit of your political spirit. I was talking to somebody at this last election, and I don't really remember which person's bumper sticker they saw. I don't know if it was a Trump bumper sticker or a Clinton bumper sticker. But they said they got so angry, they want to run the person off the road. See, if that's you, you are captured by the cultural flow of political conversation in our country. If you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus who lays his life down for people and you want to run somebody off the road, your soul is being deformed. 
you've got to pursue love. You've got to pursue it like your life depends on it. Or else you get deformed and you don't even know it. You might not even mean that that could be happening to you. We have a king. And it's not surprising he is a political figure. And so all of your allegiance, you may vote for one or another, but all of your allegiance goes to this king. Last example. You're young. Like all normal young people, you're struggling to find your identity. You're a sophomore in high school. The cultural liturgy hands you an iPhone. It tells you this is where you're supposed to build your identity. And you can build a world inside a three-by-five black phone. You're going to find your identity by comparing your life to the projected life of those people you follow. Your longings are going to be met if you get enough likes or retweets. If you get disconnected from your three-by-five-inch world, you will experience the fear of missing out. And when you look up from your phone, you're going to expect the real world to meet you on the same terms that you met on your iPhone. If that's happening to you, you're getting deformed. And the way you resist that deformation project that the culture wants is you pursue love like your life depended on. So I think it's helpful to understand the main point of the text. I think it's helpful to wrestle with what prophecy and tongues are. But I'm much more concerned about your spiritual habits than your conclusions on these two spiritual gifts. And I'm wondering, hearing this, if you think, I think I need an adjustment. Let's pray. Lord, such, such important, two words can be so important. Our understanding of what Paul's trying to say to these people, how that affects our church. Are we using our talents to build up? And I pray that you would take this passage, my understanding, and do a miracle and speak into the lives and hearts and minds and souls of the people that are here. So that none of us, myself included, would be deformed. But we would have habits that would lead us to your face and reform us into your image. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.